If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. After the fall of Jerusalem into Frankish hands in 1099 during the First Crusade, a string of new crusader states emerged, supposedly initiating Western rule in the region for almost 200 years. But according to Nicholas Morton, this was a far more complex scene than we might initially imagine. Drawing on your questions and top search queries, Emily Brafitt spoke to Nicholas to find out more about the Crusader states and uncover why the complicated story of this region had such a long cultural afterlife. So we're going to be talking all about the Crusader states. So the first question to ask is, what do we mean when we say Crusader states? Okay, so in the year 1095, the Pope Urban II launched the First Crusade, and the First Crusade then went off into the Near East and made a series of conquests. And those conquests included three big cities. The first one was Edessa in what today would be southern Turkey. The second one was Antioch in, well, it's still in Turkey, right on the border or very close to the border uh, with Syria. And then further south, the Crusaders conquered Jerusalem with a very brutal massacre in 1099. And these cities then formed the the nucleus, the starting point of what would become essentially countries in the Near East, the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the south, the Principality of Antioch in the north, and then further to the northeast, the county of Edessa. And a few years later, um, another city would be conquered called Tripoli, And that would then give rise to the county of Tripoli. So how much land did this actually encompass then? Not much. 
Crusader states were never large. They didn't, the Crusaders didn't conquer a huge area in the Near East. It's, it's the coastal strips. If you look at the Eastern Mediterranean, it's the very, very thin slither of land along the coast. And the reason the Crusaders focused on that slither of land is because that's where the best agricultural land is, and that where the, that's where the big ports are. And so when they conquered these original cities, so Antioch and Jerusalem and Edessa and later on Tripoli, they were very much thinking, okay, how do you turn these initial conquests into states that have some longevity to them? And so they really focused on conquering agricultural land and ports to give them an economic um, basis, essentially. And in time, we talk about crusaders here. In time, many settlers came across from Western Christendom who weren't crusaders. They hadn't taken crusading vows. And so it's fairly routine for historians to describe the European settlers or crusaders who've come to the Near East as Franks. That's the term that typically gets used. It's also the term that gets used by the various different commentators in the region at the time. So we're going to come on to talking about the relationships between the Franks and those living under them at this time. But first I'm going to ask, did any other names exist for these states at all? The Crusader states were not known as the Crusader states at the time. They're a later label that historians use, and not a very good label, to be honest with you, because they may have been founded by crusaders, but the people who lived in them weren't necessarily crusaders. And uh, early modernists get upset because they point out they're not really states in the, sort of the, the sense of the modern state either. So it's not a particularly helpful term. We use it largely because of a lack of alternatives, really. So outremer was a term that was used at the time, outremer simply meaning lands over the sea which, well, you can kind of see where they're coming from, but again, it's still not particularly specific. Another term that sometimes gets used is Latin East. Uh, Latins meaning Latin speakers, so people from Western Europe and their territories in the East. Again, it's not particularly helpful because only a small proportion of those living in the Crusader States or the Latin East were actually Latin speakers. So there's no good term really for these territories or countries created by the First Crusade. For me, at least, I prefer Crusader States because at least it's fairly clear what you're talking about. So Roberta Alessandra on Facebook has asked, there seems to be almost a mythical resonance to the Crusader States as a concept, as an idea. So she's asked, what, if anything, in addition to the actual territories themselves, did these states mean to the Franks and those back at home? So at the time, yes, the Crusader states and the region that they're from did have a mystical resonance is almost a, is, is actually a good phrase, because for the vast majority of Crusaders and indeed later settlers, they had virtually no idea what was in the Near East. This is a, a, an era of history where there are no good maps, virtually no one had been there. What little they know about the Crusader states or that region, the Holy Land region, um, they know about from the Bible, which, of course, is information that by this stage is over a thousand years old. And legends have crept in. So there are legends about dragons and strange phenomena out there. And so that it, it's almost a land of fantasy from the perception of people in Western Christendom at this time. They get better informed over time as the links build between the Crusader states and Western Christendom, but it always has that sort of aura of almost a sort of fantasy land in the eyes of people at the time in Western Christendom. And that's only supported by the fact that, of course, the Near East in this era is crossed by the silk roads and the spice routes, bringing all sorts of goods that to a Western European eye would have been very, very, you know, scarcely known at all, or at least 
imbued with that sense of being from very different and unusual places from their perspective. So it does have that kind of resonance, not to mention, of course, its spiritual resonance as being the site of the, for the life of Jesus or the events of the Bible and, and that kind of thing too. So it does have a very, a very unique location in the thought world of people in the 12th, 13th, 14th century. I was wondering if you would mind giving us almost a quick timeline um, from the sort of foundation, I guess. What were some of the key moments in the life of the Crusader States? Could you just chart a couple of these for us? As I mentioned, they were founded during the First Crusade at the end of the 11th century with the formation of the County of Edessa and the Principality of Antioch in the north and then the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the south then the county of Tripoli a few years later, today Tripoli's in northern Lebanon. And in the early years, the Crusader states expanded considerably through a series of military conquests and diplomatic agreements. But that expansion period ended fairly soon afterwards in the mid to late 1120s, following which the Crusader states became a great deal more embattled as the various neighbouring powers, some of which fought amongst themselves, some of which fought the Crusader States, but the pressure on the Crusader States grew as the 12th century developed, particularly with rulers um, such as Nur al-Din, or perhaps better known, Saladin, who ultimately came to pose a, a major challenge to the Crusader States. Saladin then won a major victory over the Crusader States in 1187 at a battle called Hattin, following which the Crusader States largely collapsed which then gave rise to what's called the Third Crusade, which was an attempt to try and rebuild the Crusader States, and more particularly um, to conquer Jerusalem. And so that then formed the next phase in their history. Then the Crusader States stage a bit of a recovery in the early 13th century, up until about 1244. And then after that, they went into steep decline until their final fall in 1291. So they had their fortunes fluctuate a great deal, the history is very military. There's a lot of war in this region, not just between Christians and Muslims or between Franks and Turks or other neighbouring powers. There's warfare taking place in all sorts of different vectors, but there is a lot of conflict as well. So what were some of the biggest threats actually to the Crusader states? Perhaps the easiest way to explain this is that the Near East at this time is subjected to two very significant invasions. Now, People have heard about the Crusades, but slightly less well-known are the Seljuk invasions. And it's the, the background to this is that from about the year 1000, a confederation of Turkic tribes in the Central Asian steppe region formed and then invaded Persia, or today it would be sort of Iran, Iraq, pushing all the way into Syria as the 11th century developed. And they reached the eastern Mediterranean coastline, the sort of northern Syrian region where the Crusaders themselves would operate in the 1070s. Now, that's only about 20 years before the Crusaders arrived themselves. And the Turks themselves, they're not a native people. They have recently arrived. And so as they conquer much of this region, naturally they displace and subjugate the various peoples who ruled there previously. And then the Crusaders arrive. And so, in fact, much of the history of the Crusader states, much of the history of the 12th century, is a prolonged struggle between various Turkish powers, Seljuk Turkish powers, trying to push the Crusaders out, and the Crusaders trying to push inland. But in many ways, this is a contest between two conquering powers. It's not a 
contest between one conqueror and then native peoples. It's it's and that's that's the, where the major source of competition comes from for the Crusader states. It's also where a major source of competition comes from from the Seljuk Turks' perspective because the Crusaders threaten their ability to control and dominate the region. So how were the Crusader states defended and what did this combat look like? The conflict tended to focus on a series of key strongholds, basically. And these strongholds were endlessly contested with one side um, trying to claim them and then, and then the other side. There were many areas in the Crusader states that actually were at peace for many years, but along the frontier there was a great deal of fighting. And so there's various fortresses, a town, for example, called Banyas, in the territory between the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the city of Damascus that was endlessly fought over, among others. But the conflict consisted of many battles, but also a lot of raids. And this is the way that medieval warfare is fought. Raiding parties go out, they try and destroy a few villages, gather up as many herding animals as they can, destroy crops and withdraw. And the reason they do that is because raiding activity can be conducted without risking battle, because battle is risky, particularly for the Franks, because they don't have very many numbers. So if they suffer a major defeat, they can't replace those numbers. So raids represent a way of conducting offensive warfare without the risks of battle. With all this in mind, how do you think the Crusader states managed to survive for such a relatively long period of time? Various factors. The first is that uh, when the first crusade arrived, I've mentioned the Seljuk Turks already, the Seljuk Turks were engaged in a very prolonged period of infighting. So they're fighting amongst themselves. The great Khan, the Seljuk Sultan, I should say, um, was assassinated in 1092. And that then led to a prolonged series of fighting between his various successors trying to claim the Sultanate. Uh, also, the Crusades are not the only threat that's out there for the Seljuk Sultanate. That's only one of their frontier zones. They've got other frontiers facing the Byzantine Empire or facing the Caucasus or other regions as well. And so they don't necessarily focus their attention all the time on the Franks or the Crusades, whatever you want to call them. So that's part of the explanation. The other part of the explanation is that the Crusader states very quickly conquer a, a series of ports along the eastern Mediterranean coastline, places like Acre, Tyre, Tripoli, Latakia. And as soon as they've got those deep water ports, then ships begin to arrive from Western Christendom carrying thousands, probably tens of thousands of people every year from Western Christendom who will then form the Frankish population in the Crusader States. And so that's a key part to their survival in these early years. It's there's huge numbers of people arriving from Western Christendom. Another part to it, again linked to these ports, is that a lot of the Silk Road's trade goes through those ports and that trade can be taxed and that forms the economic backbone of the Crusader States as time goes on. So from talking a bit about the sort of economic side of it, but what about the government? How were the Crusader States actually governed? The Kingdom of Jerusalem is was the biggest of them of the Crusader states. It was ruled by a king or a king and queen, and then a group of leading nobles who controlled the various different areas. And they then formed a high court and they made the decisions. And in a sense, that theoretically is the main decision-making um, body. In practice, it's a lot more complicated than that. The church has 
a lot of very senior um, clerics in the region, the most powerful and most important being the Patriarch of Jerusalem, and also various archbishops and bishops as well. They have a stake in the government as well. But as I've mentioned, a key economic factor in the kingdom's history or the Crusader state's history is their reliance on trade. And their biggest trading partners are the Italian cities of Venice, Pisa and Genoa. And these cities, because they have such economic importance in the kingdom, they're hard to ignore as well. So they have a, a seat, not necessarily at sort of the formal decision-making bodies, but their influence tells when it comes to making choices about what happens. And often they're very keen to make sure that they preserve the, the transfer of goods all the way across Eurasia so that they reach the Crusader states where they can then purchase them and ship them across the Mediterranean, whether to Byzantium or parts of Muslim North Africa or Western Christendom. And then finally, there is also the military orders. I think we'll come back to those in a bit, but the Knights Templar, Knights Hospitaller, technically they're part of the church, but given the sheer scale of their military establishment, they too get to have quite a significant say at what happens and why in the Crusader states during this era. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're totally right. We are definitely going to come back to the military orders <laughs> and also the European powers in a moment. But I just wanted to quickly ask about the structure. Diddy TV on Twitter has asked, were Odessa, Antioch and Tripoli all vassals of Jerusalem in that sort of fashion? There are very strong connections between them. There's, as a writer from this period, called Archbishop William of Tyre. And he repeatedly quotes the classical author Horace, and I'm going to mangle this quote a bit, but the gist of it is that if your neighbour's house is on fire, your own house is at risk. And I've always suspected that this is actually a bit of a sort of a saying that gets circulated a lot in the Crusader States. So the idea being if one Crusader State is in peril, they're all in peril. So they do tend to support each other at times of crisis. There are occasions when they fight wars against each other, but they're rare. And the Kingdom of Jerusalem, as the most powerful crusader state, certainly from about, I don't know, about 1115 onwards, 
it's often called upon to go and assist the other smaller crusader states to the north. Occasionally, those northern crusader states come to support the Kingdom of Jerusalem too, but it's normally the Kingdom of Jerusalem that provides the auxiliaries if they're needed. But from a political perspective, um, there's no formal reason why the Kingdom of Jerusalem should rule over the other northern states. But occasionally, the King of Jerusalem provides a regency. For example, in the 1120s, the King of Jerusalem was a regent for the Principality of Antioch. But going the other way, the early Counts of Edessa also later on became the Kings of Jerusalem. So the various ruling families are very sort of interlinked. They've got various different interests in all the various territories. So by and large, they do often work together, but but the simple answer is no. The smaller northern crusader states are not typically vassals of um, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but it's complicated nonetheless. So it seems like there was an element of cooperation, I guess. Yeah, they're very closely tied to each other, but at the same time, there is no strict requirement that the Kingdom of Jerusalem should have authority over, for example, the Principality of Antioch. So this is another question that we've had in. It's about the rulers and the leaders and how were they chosen? Was this a hereditary thing? How did people get established? Again, to take the Kingdom of Jerusalem for an example, when when Jerusalem was conquered in 1099, there were various names put forward as to who should be the initial ruler. And initially, it wasn't even clear that Jerusalem would be set up as a kingdom. There were various people who said, well, look, Jesus is the king of Jerusalem, and therefore it would be wrong to have a king in Jerusalem alongside Jesus. So the initial title that was suggested was that the ruler should be called the advocate of the Holy Sepulchre. But in practice, that thinking got swept aside very quickly, and a king uh, came about. And he was chosen, he was called Godfrey, he was the Duke of Lower Lotharingia in Northern Europe, and he was um, chosen to be king, and so he became king. But things became very disordered very quickly. Now, of course, the classic way of thinking about medieval rulers is that rule passes from father to son. But Godfrey didn't have any children, and so rule passed to his brother on his deathbed. And in fact, you had to wait for quite a long period of time before anyone passes on the kingdom to a male heir, Bulbon II passed on his kingdom to his daughter Melisande and her husband, Fulk Count of Anjou. And so the succession, is it doesn't have a sort of clear linear process to it. It's, it does tend to depend on circumstances. But again, a key consideration underpinning all these thoughts is the notion that they're aware that they are under constant, constantly in military crisis. And so they can't afford to have a civil war or much of a succession crisis. They've got to keep the defences up, and that means a smooth succession, even if the traditions around that become a bit skewed. And in fact, there is only one real civil war in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, at least, during the 12th century, at least, which I think is a mark of it being reasonably stable internally, even while other states, say, in Western Christendom are much less stable. You've actually answered one of the questions we've had from Hannah Laura originally on Instagram, who's asked about any female leaders or rulers. Are there any other female names that we should be knowing about here? Yes. Um, there are a lot of very um, very powerful, very influential, very competent female rulers. Uh, the classic one, as I've mentioned, the best example of this is the daughter of King Baldwin II, and her name was Melisande. And she was married to a husband who called Fulke of Anjou, who I've mentioned. She was a very competent ruler. She ruled Jerusalem for a very long time. 
And in fact, even when her son, Bulbin III, came of age, she wanted to stay on as ruler. And in fact, Bulbin III had to fight a civil war against his mother in order to take power. So she had a very, very strong grasp of politics. She was respected as a very senior diplomat who has a very clear-sighted view of what's going on in the Near East. And she received a great, a great many compliments from people across Western Christendom for her capacity as a ruler. So yes, it is possible. And she's not the only example. There are other examples of very competent, very powerful female rulers in this era, and very little sense that this is a problem for anyone. So there's no one objecting per se to them being women in charge. It's it's accepted fairly um, fairly widely across the region. Another example would be someone called Princess Alice, who rules the Principality of Antioch for a very, very long period of time. And there are other later examples as well, and also into the 13th century, where that several examples of, of, of long-standing female rule can be identified. And perhaps one of the ways of thinking about this is that the Crusader states, they are front-line, front frontier-border regions. And the way I've always thought about this is that given that the survival of the Crusader states is so frequently in doubt, given that there's a great deal of fighting, given that male nobles or the kings or princes of this era, they very frequently die, sometimes in battle, sometimes of illness, sometimes from all sorts of different causes. There is frequently a need for often the more longer-lived wives, queens, countesses to maintain the noble or royal identity because the turnover of their... Uh, male husbands is so rapid. So throughout, we've sort of talked about the relationship with European powers back home. Now, George Samuel won on Instagram has asked, were the Crusader states reliant on European powers or were they more self-sufficient? Um, it varies, is the answer. Naturally, in their early years, the Crusader states were very dependent on Western Europe because they needed all those settlers and crusaders and merchants to come across and provide the the people and the, the money and the resources and the trade and the shipping links to make the Crusader states work. For some periods in the mid-12th century, the Crusader states are more self-sufficient. They've got uh, a fairly significant population by that stage. They've achieved a great deal of prominence in local geopolitics, so they are de less dependent on Western Europe. But then with the rise of Saladin and the other really big powers of this era, where increasingly the Crusader states found, find themselves outmatched in terms of troops and resources, then the scale of appeals to Western Christendom asking for money, troops, resources, prayers, the things that they're looking for, that the scale of that goes up. They nearly always throughout their history are asking for support in some way, shape or form, but the intensity of that need in the 12th century particularly goes up towards the end, right up until the collapse of the Crusader States in 1187. In these moments of a closer relationship with European powers, were they close, more closely aligned to particular regions or kingdoms more than others? I think we've obviously mentioned the uh, Italian city-states, but what about other ones? So yes, the composition of the Frankish population in the Crusader States changes a lot over time. Now, initially, a very, very large proportion of the Crusaders were from the Kingdom of France. And I've, I've always thought that's why the term Franks is used as a sort of general catch-all term for Western Europeans in the Near East, because they are seen as being predominantly from the Kingdom of France, hence 
francs. But the composition of the population does change over time. There is a very substantial Italian contingent in the Crusader States as well. Places like the Kingdom of England weren't particularly that well represented. Uh, in fact, the English role in the Crusader States has often been overplayed. I mean, you hear about Richard I, for example, but actually there's only very isolated moments where England is prominent in the history of the Crusades and the Crusader States for the most part in the 12th century. It's the French who predominate. Um, in the 13th century, particularly the early 13th century, there's a much stronger German presence. And I, I've always thought the Italian presence probably expanded steadily over time all the way up until the ultimate fall of the Crusader States in 1291. As for Iberia, so modern-day Spain and Portugal, they've got a very limited presence in the 12th century. But then in the 13th century, there seems to be a much stronger um, Spanish contingent in the Crusader States. So again, it all fluctuates over time. There are substantial changes, but you're absolutely right. The composition does change over time. So who else would we expect to meet in the Crusader States? If we were to go back in time, obviously it's not just what we now call Franks. Yes, absolutely. And for me at least, and I really want to stress this because this is this is what got me into the study of not just the Crusades, but the Near East as a whole. Let's just sort of paint a few pictures. So let's say you were to go back in time to the port city of Acre, which is the biggest commercial city of the Crusader States. You'd find a very densely packed city, high population, small area, lots of buildings, lots of very narrow alleyways. The sea is slick with grime because there's no sewerage or there's no refuse removal. And so against this backdrop, you've got all these ships arriving from Western Christendom, bringing merchants and pilgrims and crusades, people who have no idea where they're arriving at or what they're going to encounter. And then from the other direction, you've got merchants, travellers from Central Asia, from China, in some cases even from places as far afield as India or Southeast Asia, obviously from the Muslim world, from Byzantium, and they're all passing through these cities, whether it was travellers or merchants or diplomats. And so if you went down these streets, these alleyways, you'd hear all sorts of languages being spoken, different ideas and stories being exchanged, different rivalries coming to the fore. There would be all sorts of things going on. It's just that incredible mix of people. And it's incredible that there's so much going on and it's wonderful and it's exciting and it's dynamic and it's terrible and it's brutal and it's all going on in a very, very narrow area. And the same is also true for other cities. So let's take Jerusalem, the capital of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. It's not so commercial. But again, you've got pilgrims arriving from all across the world. You've got Russian pilgrims, Armenian, Georgian pilgrims, Western European pilgrims, and that's just the Christian pilgrims. You've got Muslim pilgrims as well, because of course Jerusalem is very important as a religious site to Muslims, as indeed it is for Judaism as well. So again, I, I think if I could go back in time and if I had the language skills, I'd just love just to listen to the conversations they're having as people who have no prior familiarity with each other's religions or cultures or who they are, just what they say to each other, what, what stories they share, what they make of one another. It's, for me at least, that's what makes this whole era so fascinating. Now, I really want to talk about sort of life in the Crusader States as a whole, but I think we probably need to go back a little bit and just say, well, what was the experience of people actually living in what became known as the Crusader States? What was their experience before the Crusades, was it any different to what you've just described? 
Okay, so as I mentioned, um, directly before the Crusades, the nor northern Syria and much of the Holy Land region, Palestine, that sort of area, was conquered by a very rapidly expanding empire called the Seljuk Sultanate, which, as I mentioned, it originally came from the Central Asian steppe and then conquered much of the Near East. Now, the Seljuk Sultanate successfully conquered much of the Near East. It conquered much of the Byzantine uh, Empire's territories. So the Byzantine Empire, a bit of context there, that's the direct line continuator of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, the Seljuk Turks conquered much of their territories in Anatolia, so modern-day Turkey. And they also pushed southwest towards Egypt. Egypt's very desirable in this period. There's a lot of very... Um, very good agricultural land in the Egyptian Nile Delta, which is the major source of cereal crops in the Near East. And Egypt, Egypt is also intersected by the spice routes and also the Trans-Saharan gold route. So it's very valuable. And so the Seljuk Turks in 1077 pushed down to try and conquer Egypt, which at this point was ruled by a Shia Muslim empire called the Fatimid Empire. But the Fatimids managed to resist the Seljuk Turks and so you've got the beginnings of a long period of warfare with the Fatimids in Egypt trying to protect their borders in the southwest and then in the northeast, the Seljuk Turks trying to push down towards Egypt. And Jerusalem and that area around Jerusalem became the frontier of war. So the Near East is a war zone and Jerusalem itself is right on the front line between the Seljuk Turks and the Fatimids. And Jerusalem itself was conquered, reconquered. There were massacres in Jerusalem before the First Crusade. And so the area itself is a war zone as the First Crusaders arrive. And so that, that is the, sort of the background to their arrival. Do we know about the experience of the local communities at this time at all? We've got some fragments. The sources aren't particularly strong. We've got some, we, but we do have some sources which give us some clues on this. And the first thing I'd like to say is just how diverse the population in that region is. So you've got various Christian communities, whether that's Maronite Christians or Orthodox Christians or Jacobite Christians. You've got Armenian, Georgian or Russian Christians visiting as pilgrims and Ethiopian Christians too. And then you have various Jewish communities, particularly in the ports along the coastline, but then also Samaritan communities. And then you have a wide array of Muslim communities as well, Sunni, Shia. But then you've also got various smaller groups as well, such as the Nizaris. So it's incredibly diverse. There's all sorts of different communities across the region. And the first point to make about their experience is that the First Crusade and during the period of the expansion of the Crusader States non-Christian urban populations were treated extremely brutally by the Crusaders. There were a lot of massacres in the cities that they conquered. But over time, that situation seems to have settled down into a kind of modus vivendi, and by that I mean a way of coexisting. The Franks need the labour from the local people, and they have no particular agenda to try and sort of entirely sort of eradicate any non-Christians from the area. They realise that there's a need to work with non-Christians and a lot of alliances are formed with neighbouring powers as well. So they've got to be mindful of that as well. And so the basic situation seems to have been as a rough rule of thumb that provided that local non-Christian communities pay their taxes and don't try and rebel, that they will be left in peace. And broadly speaking, that seems to have been what happened. There's very few rebellions 
against the Crusader states. Hardly happens at all. But at the same time, it's not a situation where everyone has equal rights. The law codes from this era are very clear that the people with the greatest rights are the Franks, the Western Europeans. Eastern Christians get more rights, and then Muslim communities have fewer rights. So it's not a situation of equality by any, any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, you actually do occasionally get migration of Muslim communities into the Crusader states. And I bring that up just to show the complexity of the situation. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, for example, worked very closely with various Bedouin tribes. And the Bedouin tribes, I've always assumed really that the reason the Bedouin tribes are so keen on working with the Crusader states is because they require grazing lands for their various herds. But many of those grazing lands were occupied by the Seljuk Turks, who were also nomadic peoples when they invaded the region. So they have an interest in working closely with the Crusader states for that reason. Another group is called the Nizaris. They're often referred to today by a nickname from the era, which is the Assassins. And the Assassins were intensively persecuted in Seljuk Turkish territory. And after a major massacre of the Nizari population in Damascus, they migrated in very large numbers into the Kingdom of Jerusalem, moving into northern Syria later, in order to get away from persecution. So it's an incredibly complex situation. Muslim communities, non-Frankish communities, are not treated as equals, and yet there are all sorts of sensitivities and hierarchies and different factors in play here. This relates directly to a question from Barbara Bukowska on Facebook, who's asked about cross-cultural assimilation. Do we see a sort of sharing of customs or at least a similar way of life emerge between maybe these populations moving into the Crusader states, whether this be Frankish or Muslim or anyone, really? Sure. It's a great question. So there's, there's lots of I mean, this. Again, this is one of the things that makes this period so fascinating because so many things are being exchanged. Technologies, recipes, ideas theologies, they're all being exchanged in a very small area, which of course is fascinating. So just to give a few examples, there's a, a very observant writer called Uzama ibn Munkid, and he is one of the very few remaining, or he's from a, a dynasty, which is one of the very few remaining Arab dynasties that still has power in the region that hadn't lost that power to the Seljuk Turks. And he has a friend in the Principality of Antioch, a, a Western European knight, and so on one occasion, he went to go and have a meal with that Western European knight, as you do with friends. And so he arrived, and he did say he was reporting a friend's experience with this Western knight, in fact. But uh, this friend said, look, thrilled to be here for a meal with you, but I should point out we don't eat pork. There are various... You know, are you aware of the sensitivities around what Muslims can and can't eat? And so the Frankish knight said, oh, yes, absolutely. I hired an Egyptian cook who never cooks um, pork, who will make sure that all those dietary regulations are adhered to. And so it's just one example of, in this case, a very clearly a very acculturated Frankish knight in the Crusader States. Another example would be the Knights Hospitaller. And they have a massive hospital in Jerusalem with beds for a thousand people. And one of their regulations is that anyone who is admitted to the hospital should be given the best food available which in their perspective is pork. So you should be given pork dishes twice a day. But there is a regulation in the hospitaler's sort of statutes that says if the patient can't eat or doesn't want to eat pork, they should be supplied with chicken instead. 
So clearly they have thought this through and they're being sensitive to different religious um, sensibilities in this era. Another example, I'm going to stick with food, why not stick with food, is a cookbook which was created for an, a, a prince, a Muslim prince, one of um, Saladin's descendants, in fact. And this cookbook includes many recipes. Um, Saladin's dynasty is from a Kurdish background, so there are Kurdish recipes, but there are also Turkish recipes. There's Armenian flatbreads. There's even a Frankish roast. So again, both looking at this from a, from a Frankish perspective, but also from a Muslim perspective, and sticking solely with food, there's a great deal of sharing taking place. There's different recipes. People acquire tastes for various different things. And there's a lot of that going on. But just to pick a slightly grimmer dimension to this, it's not just food that gets shared, it's parasites as well. And so some um, very interesting research has been done on latrines from this era, looking at what we can learn from feces from people from this period and what parasites they were carrying. And again, you can see all sorts of parasites from various different regions, including some various tapeworms or whipworms from, say, Scandinavia, others from the Near East, others from other regions, which again suggests that it's not just food that's being exchanged, it's also wriggly things that live in your tummy as well. So it seems that it's not just a one-way transition and it's not just that one-way transition, it's across entirety of society. Yeah, it's, it, it, no, it's not a case of one civilization's learning solely from another, everyone's learning from each other. And I think a good example of that, I mean, the way I... One of, the, one of the key features of this era, not just for the Crusader states, but for their neighbouring powers as well, is just how much building work's going on. Castles, mosques, churches, palaces, city fortifications, there's a lot of building going on. But one of the things that architectural historians and archaeologists are discovering is that you find plenty of distinct features that are distinctively part of Islamic architecture in the Crusader states as well as Eastern Christian forms of architecture, particularly Armenian architecture. And you find some distinctive elements of Western European architecture in the Muslim states. And I think the way it works is that the, in the Near East, by medieval standards, people are very wealthy compared to, say, Western Christendom, which is a much poorer area or other parts of the world. But even so, by modern standards, they're still very, very poor. And whilst, say, I don't know, the Emir of Damascus or the Count of Tripoli, if they wanted to build, let's say they wanted to build a palace each, they could probably afford to build that palace. But as soon as they build it, that's it. They can't afford to employ people after that. They've run out of money. And so the, pop, the masons, the carpenters, the people who, the, the artisans who can build these places, they can't be employed by a single state for a long period of time. So when they've built the Count of Tripoli a castle, they may well go and build the city walls around the, the Muslim town of Homs. And then they might go and build a mosque in Aleppo. And so the, the workforce is, is mobile and they're working together. And we know this because... In the Crusader States, if you wanted to work, say, as a stonemason, so carving out big blocks of rock for building work, you would put your own individual device on it. And the idea is that at the end of the day, you may say, I've made three blocks, and you can tell they're mine because I've carved my symbol on them. They're called mason's marks. And some of these mason's marks are distinctively in Arabic or Arabic letters or speak of other um, cultures. So it's clear that the Crusader states employed artisans from across the area 
And it's equally clear that other powers in the area employed a range of artisans as well. So the workforce is mobile. It's not a case that Christian buildings were built in a solely Christian way and Muslim buildings were built in a solely Muslim way. The, the artisans are moving from one to the other. And so ideas and techniques get shared. And again, it's all part of how, just how fascinating it is. The same thing's true of artwork. Lots and lots of features that are that are traditional to one form of art start to appear in other forms of art throughout this era, which is all part of the bigger picture. A question from Instagram is asked about this cross-cultural contact outside of urban centres. Does it differ at all? I suspect that urban centres probably were the sort of the high point of cross-cultural interaction because that's where the markets are. A lot of the people travelling are travelling as diplomats or as traders and they will naturally be drawn to the cities because that's where the, the ruling authorities are, whether those ruling authorities are Muslim or Christian or anyone else, or indeed where the markets are. So, yeah, the cities would have been the big centres for this, absolutely. Um, in rural areas, there is there will have been some interaction, but I think one thing you could say here is that there is a serious eye to cash crops. Naturally, people do grow a great deal for their own sustenance, but one thing that gets grown a lot in the Crusader States and also in much of Egypt is sugar. And it's not, for, it's not for local consumption, it's for export. And so they've got an eye to the rural hinterland is there to feed the cities with things that they can then trade. And sugar is a big one because places like Byzantium, places like Western Christendom, indeed, and other parts of the world, human beings typically have sweet tooths. They like to eat things in sugar, but it can only be grown in certain areas. And so sugarcane cultivation and then processing and then the sale of sugar becomes a major part of the commercial life. And that's a way that the rural landscape informs the urban landscape as a vector of cross-cultural interaction. This is a question that's been highlighted, is about the relationships between different religious groups. And how did this actually compare to maybe other parts of the world at this time? Yeah, it's, it's again, it's a very mixed picture. It's, it's blurred. Because it's the Crusades, right? So there's holy war. And there's there's Crusades and there's jihad. And when the Mongols arrive in the 13th century, they're conducting what is essentially a holy war from their perspective as well. So there are all sorts of intersecting holy wars taking place, which brings about a great deal of conflict, which takes place, ironically, alongside all these cross-cultural interactions as well. But another dimension to this is that you also have various sacred sites across the Near East places like Sidonia to the north of Damascus or the um, chapel to um, Mary, Mother of Jesus in Tortosa, among a wide range of other pilgrimage locations that are sacred to Christians, Muslims, Jews in some cases as well. And so you do have these sites where Christians, Muslims and Jews worship side by side because they all have a reverence for that particular site. There's also lots of examples of interaction and plenty of occasions as well when Christians and Muslims fight on the same side because the reasons for war, yes, holy war is one of them, but dynastic ambitions, infighting, population movement, trade and the control of trade routes, there are many other reasons for wars as well which can give them a reason to fight alongside each other, not just against each other as well, which again creates a very complex and very fascinating environment. In other parts of the world, you have, do have different religions interacting. You have one religion in charge, other religions un under their authority. Those give rise to various different relationships and hierarchies and treatments, and that's 
clear across the Mongol Empire or across areas of Persia or in Western Christendom or North Africa. You see that in all sorts of different regions where there are diverse populations that are ruled by one particular religious group. But I would say that the intensity, just the sheer volume of interactions in the Near East must have been among the highest in the world, given that so much is being shoved through the region. Trade goods, ships, pilgrims, holy warriors conducting religious war from various different religious backgrounds. It's all going on, and it's in a very narrow space of time and, and space. So I think probably the intensity of those interactions would have been greater there than certainly most places in the world. Likachi on Instagram has asked, did the Franks interact with Mamluks at all, maybe on a day-to-day basis? And do we know much about that relationship? OK, so a little bit of background on the Mamluks. The Mamluks... Um, They came to power in around 1250 in Egypt and they overthrew the Ayyubid dynasty, that Saladin's dynasty, and took power for themselves and created an empire in Egypt, spreading later to Syria, which survived until 1517 when they were overthrown by the Ottomans. So the the Mamluks were actually the empire which ultimately destroyed the Crusader states. They overthrew the last remaining cities in 1291. And so there is an antagonistic relationship between the two, although, to be honest with you, the Mamluks were a great deal more worried about the Mongols than they were about the Franks or Crusader states. But again, here, as elsewhere, there's a great deal of interaction. Many of the buildings the Mamluks built in Cairo have distinctive features, which are distinctive from Frankish architecture, just as Frankish architecture has distinctive features from various Muslim influences as well. And there's a lot of diplomacy that goes on. And so the Templars and Hospitallers were among the leading diplomats who conducted negotiations with the Mamluks, and they got on tremendously well. There's even a story that one leading Templar diplomat actually became blood brothers with the Mamluk Sultan Baibars. So, again, it's it's not as simple as just having sort of a Christian side and a Muslim side. There are all sorts of forms of interaction, albeit within the context of an underlying conflict as well. Before we go into that sort of fall of the Crusader states, as it were, we did say we were going to come back to the military orders. And so to what extent were the Crusader states actually linked with the military orders? Okay, so there are lots of military orders, but the two really big ones um, are the Hospitallers and the Templars. And the Hospitallers actually predate the Crusader states. They were founded in Jerusalem while it was still under Muslim rule, under Fatimid rule in the mid-11th century. And at this time, they were purely a medical and charitable institution. But later on, they militarised with the advent of the Crusader States so that they performed both military and medical functions. The Templars evolved about 20 years after the First Crusade, initially as pilgrim escorts protecting people between the ports to Jerusalem. And then they came to take on the garrisoning of castles and the provision of troops. But by about the 1150s, 1160s, the Templars and Hospitallers are incredibly powerful. And the reason they're powerful is that they acquire large land holdings in Western Christendom, which then funnel resources on an annual basis to prop up their activities in the Crusader states. And with all that wealth, with all the troops and the castles that brings them, that means that they do supply a very large proportion of the military forces and military defence of the Crusader states, They're also extremely rich because of all those resources they're bringing forward every year, which means that viewed from the perspective of the Crusader states, they are seen as being a major asset because of all the resources they offer. But they're also seen as a major liability as well, because they're so powerful that kings and 
counts actually start to feel threatened by their presence. And there's various flashpoints where the military orders don't do as the kings tell them. And that causes all sorts of trouble for them or for both sides, really. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about these flashpoints? All right, just okay. Curious. So I've mentioned I've mentioned the Nizaris, or they're often known as the Assassins. And ultimately, they came to hold a small territory on the borders of the Principality of Antioch. And the basic relationship was that they were left in peace by the Crusader states, particularly the Templars, who had many of the neighbouring estates, provided they paid an annual tribute. And then in the 1170s, the assassins contacted the king of Jerusalem and said, we would like to make a formal treaty with you, a military alliance. And the king of Jerusalem at this time, called King Amalric I, was very keen on having that alliance because he needed allies. Saladin was increasingly posing a greater and greater threat, so it made sense for him to create that alliance. And there's no problem about a Muslim and a Christian aligning with each other at the time. This is not seen to be an issue. And so the assassins opened the negotiations, King Amalric reciprocated, they were on the verge of settling a treaty. But then the Templars began to get spooked because they feared that if this treaty was formed, the assassins would no longer be obliged to pay them tribute. And so when the assassins sent envoys down to finalise the treaty, the Templars ambushed and assassinated the assassins to block the treaty. Obviously, the treaty was off after that. The king was furious. He he tried to go to the Templar house in the town of Sidun, the idea being to apprehend the person who had conducted this attack. He's absolutely furious. And here's the problem that the Templars said, we are an institution of the church. You are external to the church. You have no jurisdiction over the Templars. And so, and the king couldn't do anything about that. And so you can see they've got different interests here where those interests align, and they normally align, then there's not um, a flashpoint. But in this case, there was a flashpoint. And actually, the king, for all that he is king, cannot actually bring them to heel, even if they treat him in such a, um, well, such a hostile way. This really, really dives straight into the troubles in the Crusade States at the time. Uh, Peter John Mills on Facebook has asked about the Third Crusade and its failure to recapture the city of Jerusalem. Why was this? Jerusalem fell in 1187 to Saladin's armies following the Battle of Hattin. News of this went back to Western Christendom. The, the Pope is said to have died from the shock of the news. The next Pope made it his first priority to arrange a massive crusade, one of the biggest, the Third Crusade, led by people like Philip II of France, Richard I of England, Frederick I of Germany, to try and take Jerusalem back. And they arrived in 1190, 1191 to try and bring this about. There's a lot of war, a lot of fighting that takes place over the next few years. And it's it's fairly inconclusive. Um, the armies ultimately came under the, under the overall leadership of Richard I of England, who tended to win all the battles. But nonetheless, on the diplomatic front, Saladin played a very intelligent game, keeping Richard at arm's length, constantly trying to slow the process down because he knew ultimately Richard would have to go home to rule his kingdom. So Saladin's diplomacy constantly tried to slow Richard down, minimise the impact of the defeats he suffered. And whilst Richard did advance twice on Jerusalem, there was always a fear among the crusading army that whilst they could probably take the city, they couldn't hold it in the long term because the Crusader states by this stage were so small 
that as soon as they withdrew back to their own countries, there wouldn't be enough of a garrison to hold Jerusalem in perpetuity. And so, and, and on the other side of the frontier, Saladin played, a, like I said, a constant, a constant approach of trying to slow the process down, slow the Christian armies down, keep them talking, keep them conducting diplomacy until eventually they went home, which eventually they did. And so, at the, in the wake of the Third Crusade, a sort of midpoint is reached. The Crusader states were rebuilt to some extent by the armies of the Third Crusade. Saladin couldn't prevent that. But the Crusaders couldn't take Jerusalem because Saladin did successfully prevent them from doing that. So how did the Crusader states decline? And we've also, if you wouldn't mind talking about it as well, a question from the Gold from Golden on Instagram asking about Acre being almost the last stand for the Crusader states. So the third crusade, which we just talked about, that happened in the 12th century, and it ended with the Crusader states being rebuilt somewhat, just not Jerusalem, in the 1190s. And in the 50-year period after that, various crusades arrived. Most of them performed very poorly on the battlefield, but they did recover a little bit of territory each, by and large, until by 1244, the Kingdom of Jerusalem and many of the northern Crusader states as well had regained a position of prominence in the geopolitics of the Near East. The thing that really changed was the advent of the Mongols. Um, the Mongols, by the mid-13th century, are in the process of carving out a massive global empire, and their territories span much of Eurasia, including the Near East, and by 1244, they are very present in the Near Eastern region. And in 1260, the Mongols conquered much of Syria, except the Crusader states. Now, the Mongols only launched one attack on the Crusader states, so they weren't responsible for the decline of the Crusader states per se. But what is significant is the effect of the Mongol invasions on the Mamluk Empire in Egypt that I mentioned earlier. Because in 1260, the Mongols invade Syria and destroy what's left of Saladin's dynasty, the Ayyubid Empire. And following this, the Mamluks march out from Egypt incredibly boldly to confront the Mongols in battle. And they defeat the Mongols at a battle called Ain Jalut. And it takes the Mongols 20 years to, um, because they've got various other priorities that's steering their empire, to return in force to try and challenge the Mamluks once again. And in that 20-year period from 1260 to 1281, the Mamluks managed to gain control over much of Syria to the west of the Euphrates River, which gives them a great deal of power, but they know the Mongols are coming back. And so they spend a lot of that time assertively conducting campaigns against the Crusader states, not because the Crusader states pose an enormous threat to them, but they want to bulk up their forces, bulk up their hinterland, their economic might, so that when the Mongols invade the next time, they've got enough force to fight them in battle. So in many ways, the decline and ultimately the fall of the Crusader states is a side effect of the wars of the Mamluks against the Mongols. The Mamluks know they have to build up their strength. The Crusaders start to negotiate with the Mongols about possible alliances, which makes them another threat. And so the Mamluks, their main concern is the Mongols and the Crusader states are destroyed as a sort of sideshow in that much bigger contest that takes place between these two other powers. So when do we start to see the loss of the individual states of Edessa, Tripoli and Antioch? So Edessa's the first to fall. That falls back in between 1144 and 1150. Um, so that, that's overthrown quite a long way back and it's never rebuilt. 
Antioch and Tripoli. Antioch falls in 1268 to the Mamluks as Antioch submits to the Mongols. It's the only crusader state to do so. And so it's the first target for the Mamluks when they're trying to build out their empire to face the Mongols. So Antioch falls in 1268 and the last remnants of the principality fall um, over the next decade. Tripoli falls in 1289, again, as part of a similar process. And, and Acre itself, the last really big city of the Crusader States, falls in 1291, which provokes the evacuation of all the remaining coastline settlements of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in that year. And does Acre sort of see the entire fall of the Crusader States as we'd probably call them? The mainland ones, yes. I mean, just, just to make things a little bit more complicated, because things aren't complicated enough already, when Richard I went on the Third Crusade, so we're talking about the year 1191, he conquered the island of Cyprus from the Byzantine Empire. And so Cyprus became a kind of crusader state really until the 16th century. And it provided a great deal of support for the mainland crusader states throughout the 13th century. But it was essentially the only... Um, territory in that region that survived after 1291 that was under the control of essentially Western European powers. So I'd like to talk a little bit lastly about legacy. Why do you think the Crusader states have had such a long cultural afterlife? Sure. I mean, this is a question that could be taken from all sorts of different directions. Its, its, impact, is, its impact is enormous. It's difficult to know where to start in some respects. Naturally, the Crusader states, in terms of the way they're viewed now, the Crusades, the Crusader states, that era is seen as being the quintessential moment or a key moment in a deeply entrenched conflict between Christianity and Islam. And when I go to dinner parties, that's what people say to me. When I say, I, say, I study the Crusades or the Near East, that's the kind of thing that they'll say that they see this as a period where Christianity and Islam are absolutely in full conflict. What my research has drawn out is that whilst that conflict is certainly true, it's there, there is an underlying conflict, there's a much more complex picture of alliances, an exchange of all sorts of things going on, there's friendships across faith boundaries. It's a much more complicated picture than that. But nonetheless, it can't be disputed that that is the way the Crusades are seen today by all sorts of different people across the world and from different religions and cultures. That is the way they're often seen. But we could move on to the Templars or the Hospitallers, which are manifestations of the crusading movement as well. They have their own legacy, which is, I mean, a, a way that the Templars are remembered a lot today. A very toxic way of remembering the Templars is that they are often drawn upon as an idea by far-right groups for various agendas. And so that's a way in which their memory is drawn upon today albeit, as I say, for very toxic reasons. Lots of the ways in which the Crusades are recalled have difficult implications for the modern day, shall we say. I think the, the point I, I like to make with my research is that whilst the, the, the underlying conflict is there, I'm not trying to dispute that for a minute, there is a much more um, nuanced way of looking at this if you go back to the original sources. That was Nicholas Morton, Associate Professor at Nottingham Trent University. His latest book, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East, is published by John Murray Press. You can listen to a conversation that we had with Nicholas about that now. Just search for Mongols versus Mamluks in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.